We'll start things off with a pop quiz. Name the opera with four villains sung by one bass baritone. And here's a hint: it is possible that these villains only exist in the mind of the tenor. The answer is coming right up on this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. The Metropolitan Opera Guild is dedicated to enriching people's lives through an awareness and deeper appreciation of opera. Our podcast features lectures and events presented by the guild in support of performances at the Metropolitan Opera. The Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast is funded in part by support from the Stuart J. Pierce Memorial Fund. To learn more, visit metguild.org. Its world premiere, Les Contes d'Hoffmann, the Tales of Hoffmann by Jacques Offenbach, has featured four main villains sung by the same bass baritone, and this opera has plenty of victims too, as three tales of doomed love are told from the perspective of the lead character, Hoffmann. I'm Naomi Baratera. On this episode of the Metropolitan Opera Guild podcast. Met radio commentator Ira Sif explores excerpts from Le Conte Hoffmann, Tosca, Boris Godunov, and other beloved works in the last part of his Villains and Victims series. Thank you. Thanks. Oh, they're so sweet around here, aren't they?、Um, thank you all for coming and coming again. You know, as we conclude our study of some of Opera's great villains and their victims. Today, we're going to reach back to recall what a great dramatist Handel was. For years, you know, Handel's operas remained buried in the archives of the history of opera, in which their popularity was duly noted. But they were almost always schlepped out of obscurity for productions that staged, cut, and performed them in a way that made them as static and deadly as possible. Several things of significance happened that changed all that, beginning in the 1980s. For one thing, there was the appearance of countertenors、uh, in the roles created for the great castrati of Handel's day. Fortunately, the surgery that produced those voices was no longer practiced by that time, and I won't bore you with the medical details. But the great countertenors of today are very skilled falsettists.、Uh, Suddenly, the public was seeing male singers in male roles, but sung with high virtuosic voices, capable of florid music that was cut when these roles were previously dropped an octave for basses or baritones, or、uh, who couldn't handle, so to speak, the florid music, or for mezzo sopranos in drag impersonating male heroes or villains. So the music was often too low for them. This re-interest in Baroque opera has also spawned a generation or two by now of voices that are trained to handle the florid music inherent in these roles. The other aid in the discovery of the dramatic potency of Handel's operas has been the advent of supertitles. Suddenly, the complex characterization, the the psychology of the protagonist, has become clear and impressive. Well, one of Handel's most popular operas, perhaps, is. Most popular, actually, is Giulio Cesare. In his masterpiece, there are two sympathetic characters, Cornelia and Sesto, two characters we root for of 
kind of dubious character, uh, Cleopatra and Cesare, and two villains, Cleopatra's brother, Ptolemeo, and his henchman, Aquila. Now, in the villain sweepstakes, Ptolemeo far outshines Aquila. And in David McVicker's marvelous production, which came to the Met from Glyndebourne, Ptolemeo was portrayed by the countertenor, Christophe Dumont, as a sort of androgynous creature. This Ptolemeo will seduce or abuse anyone, regardless of gender, of position, regardless of the promises he's made. He equates love with power. In fact, he equates everything with power and his desire to make certain that it is he and not his sister Cleopatra who will rule Egypt. This knows no morality whatsoever. We're going to watch two clips of Demo as Ptolemeo. The first is his brief aria, Belle Die di Questo, which he sings to his harem, praising their beauty. But in this production, it seems he's singing more about his own beauty, as you will see. And he cruelly tortures Cornelia, whose husband he's just beheaded, inviting her, well, really commanding her, to join him in his bed. He's promised Cornelia to Aquila, his henchman, but when Aquila asks to marry her, well, Ptolemeo becomes furious and he becomes the object of Ptolemeo's rage and mockery. So we're going to watch this first clip now, Christophe de Mo as Ptolemeo in Giulio Cesare.
Sarah cues up the next excerpt, I will tell you uh, that it is a, uh, a clip of a florid aria of Venom that Ptolemeo, our today's first villain, has against his sister Cleopatra, um, whom he likewise abuses, of course, between flights of coloratura fancy. Uh, in that cast, by the way, was Patricia Barden as Cornelia. Uh, Alice Coote stuck her head in as Sesto. And uh, we're going to see Natalie Desay as Cleopatra. Harry Bickett is conducting the Metropolitan Opera Orchestra. Now, in the end, he does get his just desserts in the end, but it takes about 32 da capo arias to get to that <laughs> point. But we're going to watch one of them now. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> sometimes singers will sing one role in opera and then another, and then sometimes even a third. Leonie Riesenick is the only person, uh, I believe, along maybe with Gwyneth Jones, uh, in the history of recorded opera to sing all three leading female roles in Strauss's Electra. A great Chrysothemis, she graduated later on to be a great malevolent Clytemnestra, and in between she made a film in which she was a brilliant Electra. And it's fun for singers to flip from the villain to the victim and the victim to the villain roles. And as we discussed last time, maybe Clytemnestra herself is sort of some of both. In the case of Astrid Varnay, she was a leading Electra for decades, and then uh, we heard her last time, and uh, then she became a great Clytemnestra. In the brief clip we're about to watch, Riesenick as Electra reveals to her mother that the blood that must be shed to stop Clytemnestra's guilt-ridden nightmares is not a ritual sacrifice of an animal, but rather Clytemnestra's own blood. One watches with relish as Varnay, without singing a note, conveys the ghoulish nature of this woman, her terror, her evil, until she receives a bit of good news that her son, Orest, who would be that avenger, has been killed and is dead and will not be able to avenge his father by killing her. Varnay's laugh alone makes this clip worth watching, as does Riesenick's prodigious vocal power and intensity. So here's a little clip from Electra with uh, Riesenick as Electra, Varnay as Clytemnestra.
Well, Clytemnestra is not the only one haunted by a murder she committed. Mazorsky's Boris Goodenough shares that with her. Now we're going to have a little Russian history. In 1584, Tsar Ivan IV, known as Ivan the Terrible, died. Ivan's successor uh, was his feeble son, Fyodor I, and he cared only for spiritual matters, so he left the affairs of state to his capable brother-in-law, Boris Goodenough. In 1591... Ivan's other son, the eight-year-old Tsarevich Dmitri, died under mysterious circumstances. An investigation was ordered by Goodenough himself and carried out by the prince Vasily Shwisky, and it was determined that the Tsarevich, while playing with a knife, suffered an epileptic seizure, fell, and died from a self-inflicted wound to the throat. Right. <laughs> Dmitri's mother claimed he was assassinated, and rumors linked Boris Goodenough to uh, that murder. In 1598, Tsar Fyodor I died, and he was the last of the dynasty who ruled Russia for over seven centuries. So Boris was nominated uh, to succeed as Tsar, despite the rumors that he had ordered the murder of Dmitri. Boris agreed to accept and was crowned the same year. Then the Russian famine of 1601 uh, for two years undermined Boris Godunov's popularity and the stability of his administration. And in 1604, there was a pretender to the throne who appeared in Poland claiming to be Dmitri alive. And he gained support, obtaining a force of soldiers. He marched on Moscow, uh, crossing into Russia. His invasion force was joined by disaffected Cossacks. But after a few victories, that campaign faltered. In 1605, Boris, still czar, was succeeded by his own son, Fyodor II, when Boris died. In Mussorgsky's opera, Boris's guilt haunts him repeatedly, building to his death scene in which the monk Piman comes to him with a haunting story related to the murder of the child Dmitri, of which Boris is indeed guilty. Ultimately, he's devoured by this guilt. We're going to watch the amazing Boris Kristoff a towering interpreter of this role in Boris's death scene, filmed in 1956. 
The role of Piman is sung here by the marvelous bass Nicola Moscona and Alfred Wallenstein conducts.
That was on network television then. Can you imagine that happening now? As we've discussed previously, in Verdi's operas, there are not always clear-cut villains. It's more a case of misunderstood people or unrequited, rejected lovers. Um, last time we watched uh, Verdi's take on religion, the Grand Inquisitor and Don Carlo, he was not very sympathetic. But it's interesting that uh, we find uh, some of his primary villains in his two, two of his three Shakespeare operas. Uh, we've already heard uh, last time from the lovely Macbeths. And now it's time for a look at the villainy Iago has caused in Verdi's Otello. One of the reasons for my choice of this next excerpt is the interesting domino effect of Iago's villainy. By planting the seeds of jealousy in Otello, Iago manages to turn a victim into a villain who commits a senseless murder. And while we're at it, let us not forget that Iago gets Rodrigo to try to kill Cassio, ending in Rodrigo's death as well, and followed by Otello's own suicide when he realizes Desdemona's innocence. And so the wicked scheming of Iago results in a virtual bloodbath. The other reason I wanted to play this particular ex excerpt is to continue to examine the work of one of the Met's treasures for 36 years, Leonie Riesenick. Heard here in one of her few non-Wagner, non-Strauss roles, Riesenick's assumption of Desdemona was so controversial among the fans of Milanov and Tobaldi that it resulted in death threats made against the diva, I'm not making this up, by rabid fans of the other divas. In fact, at a performance of Otello I attended several days before the one we're about to listen to, Riesenick made a curtain speech in which she said, if you don't like me, then don't come to hear me. But please don't threaten to kill me. The speech was nearly as moving as her sensational Desdemona. A few uh, days later, Rudolf Bing banished the standees from the broadcast. Uh, he felt that it was those people who were uh, responsible for the death threats. Actually, Riesenick had a lot of partisans among the standees, so the ones with a budget uh, got orchestra seats for the performance and saw it in the house sitting down. The rest of us uh, listened to the Met broadcast on the radio that Saturday, which was my 18th birthday. There was a level of what we standees affectionately called dementia present in Leonie Riesenick's performances, which invariably lived very much on the edge. Riesenick spared nothing in terms of voice or emotion, and in Otello, she had a match in James McCracken, whose hyper-frenzied more was even more intense opposite this particular Desdemona. We only have time for a portion of their Act Three duet in which Otello, by now falling prey to Iago's poisonous green-eyed monster, presses Desdemona for the fatal handkerchief that Iago pilfered and planted in Cassio's room. While she, unaware of the rage she's inciting, she continues to plead for Cassio's forgiveness. Verdi's lines have rarely been given a more intense reading. Riesenick employs her soaring high notes to great effect as well as chest tones and a plangent quality to her delivery balanced with Desdemona's show of backbone as she tries to defend herself. This may not be a conventional Desdemona voice, but it is a very complete portrayal. And you can hear the house explode spontaneously, even with us standees banned from the place. As Otello drags her off at the end of the duet, Riesenick's Desdemona emitting agonized sounds of disbelief and grief. So this is an excerpt from the Act Three duet from Otello, Riesenick, and James McCracken. <laughs> 
indietro! Indietro! scritto ahimè che non sei forse un vil cortigiano Next up, we have a villain named Villain. That is to say, one of the four villains in Offenbach's only opera, Le Comte of Mann. In many cases, these four baritone, bass baritone roles, really, uh, who undermine the poet Hoffman in his quest for love with four different women, are sung by one person. In rarer cases, the four women are performed by one singer. I saw Joan Sutherland do it, Beverly Sills uh, accomplished that feat uh, memorably. Anna Netrebko was slated to do that at the Met's most recent production, but in the long run chose only to sing Antonia, but quite memorably. There is no definitive version of this opera because Offenbach died before completing it, and so often when it's produced, music from various Offenbach operettas are drawn into flesh out a particular edition. But the one scene that remains constant is the Antonia scene, which ironically was omitted at the premiere of this opera for time constraints. The Antonia scene is the most effectively operatic in the entire work, and it's the only scene in which Hoffman is not the main victim of his villainous pursuer, but rather his love object, Antonia, is. There are many layers of meaning in this work. Hoffman is really his own worst enemy, his heavy drinking in some productions, drug use, uh, his pursuit of the perfect love instead of following his muse and fulfilling his artistic promise conspire to his downfall. 
Of the four love objects examined, Antonia is the most human, a frail girl blessed with a beautiful voice, daughter of a great diva who's died. She's driven by the villainous Dr. Miracle to literally sing herself to death, her constitution too fragile to withstand the rigors of strenuous operatic performance. I can relate to that. The climax of this act of the opera is the trio in which Miracle summons the voice of Antonia's mother to goad the girl into singing herself to death. The trio builds in a very taxing, very exciting way for Antonia, rising to a high C sharp, then ending on a floated soft trill as she dies. This HD transmission, which was also a Saturday radio broadcast, was memorable as well for Anna Nutrebko's colorful intermission interview. When uh, the HD host, Debbie Voigt, asked her what she liked about this role, Anna replied, is short. <laughs> we were dying in the radio booth. <laughs> anyway, we're going to watch this trio with Alan Held as Dr. Miracle, the lovely Wendy White as Antonia's mother. We all miss her. And Anna Nutrebko as a thrilling Antonia. This Met performance from 2009 is conducted by James Levine.
There's no way we can examine operatic villains and victims without turning for our finale to Scarpia and Tosca, inevitably the greatest Scarpia and Tosca of our time, Tito Golbi and Maria Callas. Uh, I was fortunate enough to see her two performances, her final two performances at the Met in 1965. I spent three days and two nights sleeping on the street in front of the old Met. <laughs> Much to the horror of my parents, who by then knew I was certifiable, but still. <laughs> During our time online, Franco Corelli and his wife Loretta appeared uh, on Saturday afternoon with a cart of coffee and donuts for the freezing standees. It was March. Franco was uh, brandishing their poodle, Romeo, and as they approached each standee, Loretta would demand, Are you here for Carlos or Corelli? <laughs> One had the feeling that if you said Carlos, Romeo would bite you. And certainly there'd be no coffee or donut. I was definitely there for Collis, but terrified of the repercussions. So when she asked me, I blurted out, Golby. <laughs> I got coffee, no donut, no dog bite. <laughs> the tickets were finally sold at noon on Sunday. We all went home, freezing. Most of us had colds during the performances. When people ask me what the performances were like, I simply say it was like looking through a keyhole at the real events that an opera was later based on. Callas and Gobi simply were Tosca and Scarpia. Corelli added glamour to the first performance. Richard Tucker, well, a little less so in the second, but it was anyway all about the confrontation of the baritone and the soprano in act two. We're going to watch two excerpts from two different Callas Gobi Toscas. The first excerpt is Maria's incredibly beautiful Visitarte from her Paris debut in 1958. This we are watching because it's simply a glimpse of the soprano at the end of her all-too-brief vocal prime, singing with effortless beauty and grace. Then we'll jump to the entire balance of Act Two, eight years later in London, 1964 Covent Garden Tosca, directed with incomparable detail by Franco Zeffirelli, with Callas and Gobi living their roles. So here are two excerpts from Tosca.
Abbiamo per morto il cavaliere, quest'uomo fido provvederà. Chi m'assicuro? L'ordine che io gli darò, voi qui presente. Poletta, chiudi!
davanti a lui remava tutta Roma. Thank you all for coming. Hope to see you next year. Huge and heartfelt thanks to Ira Sif for taking us on such a fantastic journey, exploring the villains and victims of opera. Ira will be back at the Metropolitan Opera Guild next season for our community engagement events, and his lectures always sell out fast, so be sure to keep an eye out in August for the announcement of programming. We'll be back in a few weeks with some more delicious operatic goodies for you. And until then, I'm Naomi Baratera, and thank you for listening.